you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, as you know, this is Palm Sunday today, which is uh, the, the beginning of Holy Week, which is a seven-day journey preceding Easter Sunday uh, it, when we will ultimately celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And so before we jump into anything, I just want to encourage you to engage with Holy Week uh, at Sojourn Montrose uh, this week. We will have a Maundy Thursday gathering, a Good Friday gathering. Both of those will be here at 7.30 p.m. on Thursday and Friday, respectively. And then we'll have a church picnic at the Manil on Saturday for Holy Saturday, and that will be at 11 a.m. There will be an Easter egg hunt. It's going to be good fun. And then, obviously, we will be here next Sunday for Easter uh, to celebrate the resurrection. And note that there will be three gatherings next Sunday, an 8 o'clock, a 9.30, and an 11 o'clock gathering. And so please join us for any and or all of that uh, that you are able to. Uh, consistently, year after year, I, f- I find the the rhythm and the celebration of Holy Week to be uh, just a huge milestone in the year for me, not only just in terms of what we do as a church, but in terms of what the Lord ends up teaching me about himself and his love for me. Um, it just hits different every year in a way that I know is transformative to me, and I hope it will be for you as well. But this, we are a week away from Easter. And Easter, as Christians, is, it really marks as the linchpin of all of our hopes as Christians. The Apostle Paul tells us that our faith is futile if Christ is not raised. On Easter Sunday, next week, Jesus will emerge from the tomb as a new man in a new garden of a new creation. On Easter, death is defeated. The forgiveness of sins is sure. On Easter, all that is bad seems to be coming untrue. The resurrection provides us with a king prepared to ascend to the throne, proclaiming himself as the authority over all things in heaven and on earth. So Easter is the hope of new life and eternal life. Easter is, in many ways, the celebration of the kingdom come. But on Palm Sunday, we see the kingdom coming. The kingdom. These words which are so familiar to the Christian, and at Sojourn we strive regularly to preach the gospel of the kingdom, meaning that we believe that the good news of Christianity is not only that individuals can be saved from their sins to experience eternal life in relationship with God, but that we believe that God is establishing a kingdom in Jesus Christ that is good news for all of mankind, all of creation, and changes everything about the world. So we, like Christ and the authors of the New Testament, often at Sojourn use words like the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, or simply the kingdom. But what can be said that is obvious about the kingdom based upon the scriptures isn't always as clear as we would like it to be. From the days of Abraham, God promised a nation that would bless the nations of the world. He promised a kingdom. And as he established the kingdom of Israel, God was set up as king over his people. And then God allowed the people of Israel to have 
human kings who fell short, but they served as figureheads and leaders for a nation which was called to be set apart and holy and a blessing to all the nations of the world. When Israel failed to meet their calling, the prophets spoke and rebuked them and gave promises of a day in which God's kingdom would fully come. And these promises begin to give us a glimpse of the kingdom that we preach. In this kingdom, the prophets tell us, there will be peace and righteousness and worship. The nations are going to flock to this kingdom for refuge and for wisdom. Most of all, the promised kingdom is going to be a place, the prophets tell us, in which God dwells with man, as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. God speaks of this future kingdom in Ezekiel chapter 37, saying, They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backsliding in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will make a covenant of peace with them. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in, the, is in their midst forevermore. So the kingdom of God is the place in which God is dwelling with his people. His people who have been forgiven and cleansed from their sins. The kingdom of God is a place in which these forgiven people who are worshiping a God who is dwelling among them are also obeying and glorifying God, and God therefore has peace with them, and they have peace with one another. Then the kingdom of God becomes a beacon to all the nations of everything that is good and right and pure and true. And in the Gospels, Jesus talks about the kingdom constantly. And he does so primarily using parables. The kingdom of God, according to Jesus, is like a mustard seed which grows from something seemingly insignificant into the glory of the garden plant. It's like a treasure hidden in a field that is worth selling all of your possessions in order to purchase that field. The kingdom of God is like a dinner party that is set for outcasts. And it's a vineyard in which Faithful workers are well rewarded. The kingdom of God is like seed that is sown liberally and thoughtfully and takes root in healthy soil. The kingdom of God is like leaven which is hidden in three measures of flour that grows to become loaves of bread to feed the nations. The kingdom of God is like a net which gathers many fish and then the good fish are sorted from the bad fish. On and on the parables of the kingdom go. And so what is it that we can actually know about this kingdom? Well, the kingdom of God is something that the Gospels talk about as an imminent and coming reality. Jesus himself is the foremost proclaimer of the kingdom coming. And the kingdom of God is concerned with righteousness and with the judgment of sin. The kingdom of God includes Jews and it includes Gentiles. And the kingdom of God will surely be a fruit-bearing kingdom that provides food and shelter for all who receive it. The first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark 
concern the kingdom. As Jesus opened his mouth and said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The promises of the prophets and of God himself are coming to pass. That's what Jesus says. That's the first thing he says in Mark. He says all the promises of God are coming to pass. The kingdom of God is close. It's at hand. Repent. Turn from your sin and walk in obedience and in preparation. Believe the gospel, a word which means good news, a royal announcement. The gospel is, after all, a royal announcement because it concerns a king and his kingdom. And the kingdom is good news. It's gospel. Why? Because of who the king is and because of the nature of his kingdom. So make no mistake, when Jesus arrives on the scene and says, repent and believe the gospel, he is saying that this is very good news, that the kingdom of God is coming. You want peace? Here comes the kingdom of God. You want forgiveness and grace and mercy to be overflowing like a mighty river? Then you want the kingdom of heaven. You want to dwell in a peaceful relationship with a loving and divine God of the universe? You want freedom from your enemies? You want the ability to taunt death as that which is destined to lose? Do you hate injustice and hunger and strife and violence? If so, then the kingdom of God is that for which you are longing. Do you want an eternity that doesn't involve tears, where there's no more sickness, never again a miscarriage, an act of racism, an act of intolerance or violence or injustice or love lost, here comes your king, church. Repent and believe the good news. Everything bad is coming untrue in this kingdom. The life of Jesus following his initial proclamation gave us pictures of what the kingdom is like. Wherever he went, sick people were healed, demons fled, hungry bellies were filled, the deaf began to hear and to speak, the blind began to see. The kingdom of God is a place where the king can walk on water, where the king can raise the dead, and yet the king still has time to cradle and bless little children. Looking at the life of Jesus, the kingdom of God seems to be a place in which the smallest voice in the crowd is heard and given credence. It's a place where former prostitutes are treated like princesses, where tax-collecting thieves become hosts of marvelous tea parties, and where the rich, powerful, and haughty are called to lay down their rights, their possessions, and their privileges for the sake of others. The kingdom of God is where real equity reigns. Real justice is established. We know this because the prophets promised that it would be true and the life of Jesus shows us that it is indeed true. That all of these seemingly too good to be true realities are in fact just the tip of the iceberg of the goodness of God in His new kingdom. And this kingdom is ruled by law, but the law is love. Endless and miraculous and costly love. The kingdom of God, Jesus shows us, is a wedding feast where the good wine never runs dry. So those who read the prophets were longing for this kingdom to come. 
in the midst of their homeland being occupied by the pagan Roman Empire, their temple being full of swindlers, and without the presence of God, the longing only grew in the nation of Israel. And then a man came onto the scene proclaiming that the kingdom was at hand. Repent and believe. Some considered him a fool. Some thought he was a demon. But many listened. Many were healed. Many were fed. Many more were the benefactors of the beautiful reality of a God-man making them the object of his reticence, noticing them from afar, and then moving near. Seeds were planted in the hearts of many. Anticipation builded, and the authorities of the other kingdoms began to take notice. And then, in Mark chapter 11, the king comes into the most important city in the world, especially the Jewish world. At the Passover, no less, the most important moment in the calendar, here comes the king in royal procession. Everything about his entrance in Mark 11 is a statement that the kingdom is at hand and that he is the king. Like Solomon, the heir to David's kingdom, he rode into Jerusalem to the praise of many with cloaks spread before him. But Solomon rode his father's mule, a sterile and tired beast of burden. Jesus rode rode a colt of a donkey which had never been ridden, signifying that His kingdom is a new one, and it will be a fruit-bearing one, multiplying over and over until the whole earth is covered by His royal decree of good news and forgiveness for all mankind. The text from this morning says, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save us or deliver us. Save us, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Deliver us, O Lord, in the highest. They saw him riding in and they begged for his kingdom to come. Come, take the city, they said. Cleanse us from these Roman overlords. Come, make us prosperous and free like God promised we would be. Instead, he came into the city to be taken. Instead of cleansing Israel of the Romans, he cleansed the temple, the pride of Israel itself. And yet, he did come to make them prosperous and free. The text says, those who went before and those who followed were shouting. Of course, there's an obvious reading to this verse. Mark is describing the scene. People surrounded Christ on this faithful ride into Jerusalem. Some of them went before him and some were after him and all of them were shouting. But I really think that Mark is telling us something even more poetic in this language. Since sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, people have been shouting to God, deliver us, save us. Those who went before Christ cried, Hosanna. And even today, after the kingdom has been inaugurated through the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, our hearts and those of all mankind continue to cry out, Hosanna in the highest. They cried it in Egypt and in Babylon. 
They cried it in Assyria and in Persia. They cried it in the wilderness and in Jerusalem. And today they cry it in Kiev and Islamabad and Los Angeles and Tokyo and Johannesburg and Tegucigalpa and Quebec. At least they do once their hearts comprehend that such a kingdom might exist, that such a king might reign, and that his kingdom might one day truly cover the earth as water covers the sea. Church, today as we remember Jesus' ride into Jerusalem, we remember and celebrate that God has given us good news in the gospel of the kingdom. But kingdoms often fall when kings fall. A game of chess illustrates this beautifully. The game is conceded once the king can be taken. It's a foregone conclusion. Without the king, the kingdom of the table belongs to your opponent. Yet the the kingdom of God had a prerequisite that the king himself must not be protected, but instead he must die. Why? Because his kingdom is one in which the people are cleansed from their sins and in which God dwells with them in peace and in unity. Jesus died for the sake of the kingdom being perfect and everlasting and acceptable before a holy God, and he rose to prove that the kingdom has indeed come. He ascended to take his throne, and today he reigns. His spirit is present among us, as his people whose hearts have cried out in desperation and in delight, Hosanna in the highest. On that fateful day as he rode into town, people were throwing their cloaks on the ground before him, a carpet for their holy king. This morning, will you lay the cloak of your soul before King Jesus on his procession? Will your heart cry out for deliverance to come in your life, and in the life of the world around you. He has given himself, and all of himself, so that we can have all of him, and so that we can have all that is his. His kingdom is coming. The world around us is often bleak and dark, and so we cry out, Hosanna. And we ask that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And we don't ask this without hope, brothers and sisters. We ask knowing that it is and that it has and that one day there will be no part of the earth that is not fully saturated in all the heavenly realities that we've spoken about today and much more than we can imagine. Hosanna in the highest indeed. Let's pray. Father, We cry out to you, Hosanna in the highest. Save us. Deliver us. As we come before you with our sins and our failures and our insecurities, with our selfish ambitions, with our hearts which are weary, distracted, our minds full of thoughts that are earthly and at times hellish, would you save us? Would you deliver us from ourselves and from the calamities that are all around us so that we might participate in the fullness of the beauty of your kingdom? 
Wash us in your blood that we might be cleansed. Heal us that we might be well. Pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come in our hearts and in this congregation and in this city in such a way that the cries of Hosanna would come up to you as holy incense, pleasing to you, knowing that you are a God who is pleased to deliver his people who cry out to him. This morning, as we prepare to come to the table, would we taste and see your goodness? Would we eat of the fullness that you have provided for us? And would we feel your deliverance in our bodies and in our souls? It's in Jesus' name that we